Well, we're coming to the end of uh, our Exodus series. We're going to be one more week in this, and then I'm uh, working on a couple of other series, one that we'll do for a couple weeks between here and the fall, uh, where I'm going to be talking about how to live as a Christian in a polarized world. Um, so that'll be four weeks, I think, maybe five. And then we start in the, the fall on the 18th of September, maybe the day after the big fair, uh, with our fall series, which will take us all the way to Christmas. Um, and that will be actually sort of the idea of really what the church was designed to do will be in the book of Acts, working through the first part of Acts. So really excited about what's coming up here. And um, just to reiterate, I would love every person who calls Pursuit their home to be at that meeting on the 29th. Uh, we don't have membership yet. We're hopefully going to offer membership in the next calendar year. But if you would say, I'm interested in being a member at this church, or this is my home church, or I am you know, involved here, then I would love it for you to be at that meeting on the 29th where we're able to kind of go through our vision for the year and really thank God for what he's done in our church's history, uh, where we are, give you kind of a, a status update on where we are as a church, and then talk to you about the next year coming up and the vision that we have for what's going on. And um, honestly, if you... This is your place. We want you to be there. We want everyone to feel welcome at that, at that meeting. And then again, on the 18th, this will be our huge outreach into the community. Um, and you think, uh, it's, it's funny, because I, I ran into a family that was at our VBS a couple weeks ago who does not attend our church, and their kid got our flyer in the mail and begged their parents to go to our vacation Bible school, which is just a really cool uh, thing. And the parents, you know, they live locally, and they were asking me questions about the church, and when I explained to them, they asked the question, why did you feed all the kids after VBS? I've never seen a church that fed all the kids at, at, at the end of it. Um, and I said, yeah, it was kind of a complicated process trying to feed, you know, like 60 or 50, whatever, however many kids we had every single day, trying to figure all that, the, the parts of that out. By the way, I was the lunch lady for the week. Um, I had, yeah, that's right. I, I have graduated in ministry all the way from uh, running the whole entire thing to just serving the lunch. It's fantastic. Uh, so I was the one putting together the meals, and I said to her, hey, you know, we were really hoping to reach kids in our community, and we didn't want to send any kids home hungry. Um, and that, like, resonated, really. I could see in her uh, that, that that was something she was like, wow, I never considered that, that we might have kids from the community who come who don't, don't have what they need, and we're not going to send any kid home with an empty stomach I mean, yeah, it was nice for parents to go, yeah, my kid gets lunch, and now I don't have to think about lunch for the whole week. But really, the reason we did that was because we wanted to reach out to those kids in the community, and we did. We reached out to a lot of them. And so this community resource fair that we do in September is our way of partnering as well as we can with our local partners. It is uh, honestly us doing something collaborative with Ralph Reeder and with the community center to say, we're on your team, we realize you need this kind of an event in the area, this is something they asked for, and we will run the whole thing and pay for the whole thing. It costs a ton of money for us to do it. Um, you know, we walked through and figured out the details of it last uh, week of where everything's going to be. We're hoping it'll be outdoors completely, so please pray for amazing weather for that day. Not only will we have a bunch of bounce houses for kids, but the, the fire department is bringing a fire truck, and we'll let the kids actually spray the hose into a, like a, a, a house that they make up. They like set up a house, and you could stand with the hose with a fireman and actually spray it, and it's going to be the coolest thing a kid has ever, you know. 
Uh, we have the rock climbing wall from the police station. They're going to bring that over and set it up. There'll be like about 10 to 15 pallets of fresh produce that we'll give away in a free farmer's market. And then we have about 40 vendors that are signed up. They're just resources in the community that are designed to help people. So when we do have some of the lower income you know, folks in our community show up, they'll have access to be able to sign up for all kinds of things that will help them in their everyday life. So it's a gigantic event in our year. It's the way that we kick off our fall every year. You know, there are a lot of churches that do uh, food trucks in a field and, you know, they have a big, you know, let's all get back together and have a great time. And what we say is our biggest event of the year on, in that time frame is to serve our community as well as we can. So we, we hope that everyone will be there, everyone will sign up, everyone will be involved. Let me, let me get to what we're supposed to be doing right now instead of me uh, talking more about how much I love what we do as a church. Okay, uh, we're, we're picking up the story here where the Israelites now have been forced out of town, have traveled quite a distance. Remember we talked about it being somewhere between 120 and 150 miles. Essentially, if we got up and walked to Duluth, that's essentially what they have been doing. The amount of time is not really in there, how long this took between the time when the last plague happened and the Israelites were sent out of town. And on their way out, they looted all the Egyptian people and took the wealth of the entire nation with them to the moment where this starts to happen. Um, and it could have been a long period of time. It could have been however long you think it would take to get about one and a half million people, 800,000 men plus women and children, all the way 120 to 150 miles away. could have been longer. You might have in your head that it was like the next day. There's almost zero chance it was the next day. I mean, that would have been a real miraculous thing that I think probably would have been in it would have said, and then the Israelites teleported 150 miles away. Um, a big circle opened up in front of them, and they walked out. You know, um, that's, That would be a way cooler. Never mind, that's awesome. I'm going to make that movie. Um, and we pick it up here with them uh, kind of wandering around uh, in the area. Now, what's really cool about this is that they're being guided every step of the way. There really is no question about where they're supposed to go and what they're supposed to do. Now, as we get into this, I think sometimes we have the, the uh, desire to be led by God in a very physical manifestation kind of way, the way that, that the Israelites are being led. That if God would go ahead of us in a cloud of fire, in a cloud of smoke, then we would know exactly where to go and what to do, and we would be obedient to what God is calling us to do, okay? And I think if we were in this situation, we would see ourselves being able to obey what God is doing and... Um, you know, I, I think sometimes it's easy to romanticize that and say that that's how we would react. But given the way Israel reacts every single time, you know, knowing everything that's gone on, it points to the idea that all of us are selfish and eventually we start to question, even when God does incredible things to get our attention and move us along. Okay, that's essentially what's going on here. Now, for weeks or months, this cloud a fire by day and smoke at night has led them. And you think about how would you communicate to, you know, a conservative estimate, one and a half million people, uh, where you were going to go and what you were going to do. I mean, it's amazing that they have this thing way out ahead of them that is showing them where to go that probably all of them for miles can see and follow. It's actually a, a pretty ingenious way of God to communicate to the mass of people that are all traveling in the same direction to keep them on track of where they're going, because how would you communicate to that many people? I mean, you know, in my mind, you would have, like, every so often, a person who would announce the next, to the next group of people. Um, I actually read this, uh, 
book and listen to this podcast on World War II. And what was so interesting, uh, one of the things that just stood out to me is that in the middle of World War II where, uh, sorry, let me go back, World War I, not World War II, big difference, large, very large difference. Uh, in the middle of World War I, the army for the Germans were so large that it, there are, there are uh, firsthand accounts of people who lived in places where the army marched right through town where they would essentially, essentially be sitting on the porch of their home watching the army march through their town, right? Uh, no one would be fighting. They would just be on their way to the next place where they were going to battle. And they would watch the, the army march through their town for like 28 straight hours. There would be people marching perfectly in lockstep for that long marching through their town. How in the world would you communicate to that many people? How in the world would you keep them organized? This is not an army that's moving along. This is a caravan of people who are, you know, loosely associated, uh, who are probably not moving very organized fashion. And so God puts a pillar of fire ahead of them, a pillar of smoke at night, and allows them to move 24 hours a day if that's what it takes, and allows that this pillar to communicate to them I don't see this pillar being a very small thing in front of the person who's in front. I see it being a spectacle that everyone would see and be able to identify this is the way that we go. So that's the story that we're picking up here, right? So here we go, looking at uh, verse, uh, chapter 13, uh, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through, Philist- sorry, through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if we face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people, led the people around the desert towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. So there's a couple things going on here. First, the Israelites are ready for battle, but secondly, they aren't ready for battle. God says, if I put them into battle right now, they'll probably give up and turn around and come back. They'll return to slavery to avoid being in battle. So he takes them away from the Philistine country, which is essentially where they're going to end up someday. And he takes them over to a place where they'll be sort of protected from uh, battle at the moment. And it says, in this little section, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place, and you go to go all the way back to the beginning of how Israel made it into Egypt. They made it into Egypt because Joseph was in Egypt, and Joseph had carved out a place for them to live and had kind of had a relationship with uh, the Pharaoh at the time, and the people were blessed at that time. They were honored among the Egyptian people. They were not slaves, and over 400 years, it went from them being the honored people to slaves. During those 400 years, they kept their eye on the idea that they were not supposed to stay in Egypt. Joseph, from the very beginning, said, hey, one day when you leave this land and you go to the place that God has set aside for us, take my bones with you. That's 400 years ago that he had said this to them. Okay? And in 400 years, they had seen their status in the area go from being honored and you know, uh, people that were given the best of everything to people who were despised and people who had become slaves to the Egyptian people. But he had faith even back then, 400 years before, to say, when God does this, take my bones with you. Some of us have faith to see things out way beyond even our lifetime. Some of us have faith to see what's going to happen in our church, what's going to happen in the lives of people around us, what's going to happen, that God is faithful, that he keeps his promises, and we have that kind of faith. And others of us don't necessarily always have that kind of faith. I think sometimes the further away you get from the generation who began something, 
the harder it is for you to keep your eye on what God is doing as you move forward. We've, we've, we've seen this even in our, our young church. Right? We've been here three years. There were a uh, hundred people who signed on three years ago to start this church. And even in three years, we've seen that vision get blurrier. Right? We've gone through a lot of stuff. COVID was a weird thing that threw all churches for a loop. Right? That original vision that we had kind of in our hearts and, and in what we were kind of investing in has gotten a little blurrier over time. And one of the things we're hoping for in August is to kind of reset. Reset that vision. Reset the people who are saying, I'm here for this. Reset how we respond when we're called to act and called to give and called to you know, join in with what's going on and called to give our time and our resources. And you know, that's going to be us trying to clar- re-clarify the vision. But from, for Joseph, 400 years later, they're taking his bones with him and they're seeing that this is God responding to that prophecy that Joseph had made all those years ago. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in the front of the people. And so we see here that God guides them. He guides them. He shows them where to go and every step to take. And I think so many of us, again, would want this sort of guidance in our decisions, our daily you know, walk with Jesus. We'd want to say, God, just go ahead of me and show me what to do. I don't want to make decisions. In fact, when I get to a place where I have to make a decision, I just feel like I'm, I, I don't know what to do. Like, am I going to do this right? And I think some of us, we even have this idea that like, if I don't make the right decision, I'll be off of the path that God wants me to be, be on. I'll be doing something that God doesn't want me to do. I'll be going, moving against his will. If you just show me... If you just speak to me out of a burning bush or if you just show me which way to go with a cloud of fire or, or a cloud of smoke, would you, would you just do that for me so that I would know exactly what to do and where to go? And, you know, I think it was interesting um, as I was kind of thinking through this this week. Um, there's a couple things that they didn't have that we do. A lot of times we're trying to discern God's will in our lives, trying to decide what to do, trying to decide, you know, make huge decisions should I move? Should I take this job? Should I marry this person? Should I go to this college? Should I choose to live here or there with these people or those people? Should I, you know, do these things? And we get ourselves kind of caught up in this decision-making process where we're not sure what God wants us to do. I think when you're a believer and you're serving Jesus, you have a lot of options. There's a lot of things that God will bless in your life. If you're listening and you're paying attention and you're asking God to intervene and to show you what to do, you have a lot of options as a believer that God will bless. You know, when you find yourself in sin, you don't have a lot of options. When you find yourself addicted to something, you wake up in the morning and you think, how can I get more of this? When you find yourself in a a place of desperation to serve your own selfishness or to control another person, or you find yourself in a a relationship that's just controlling you, or, you know, you find yourself in in a situation like that, you don't have a lot of options. You wake up in the morning and what you serve is not God. What you serve is the thing that you need to get for yourself. You have one option in that situation, right? It's either serve the thing that's calling you to serve it or turn and go the other direction. But when you're a believer, the whole world opens up to you and all of those options, as long as we're 
looking at God's word. We're asking him to speak into our lives. We're asking the people around us for their input and what they see in our lives. And there are many options for us to still honor God and be on track. It's not a linear path where if we step off of the path, now all of a sudden we're in the wrong place doing the wrong thing. If we step off the path to serve ourselves, to serve our desires, to be selfish, to enter into sin, then yes, we're stepping off the path and we're going to find ourselves in a place we don't want to be. Where God's going to get our attention one way or the other, either gently or forcefully, depending on how far we are down that road. But when we find ourselves listening to God, asking for his, um, you know, his intervention, looking at his word, asking the people around us, our lives open up into many, many, many possibilities. That's the, the key thing to remember when we're making decisions like this is that it's possible God may bless many decisions that you might possibly make. That's okay. It's not a linear path where if you step off of it, all of a sudden you're going to get zapped by this God who wanted you to stay on this path for the rest of, of your life. Now, if he's telling you to do something specifically, if you're having it backed up in what you read in his word, if it's being backed up by the people around you, if you're you know, your pastor is telling you that's probably the, the best way to go. And then you still choose to go in the other direction. You're on your own there, bud. Like, good, good luck to you, all right? But, but I think some of us would go back and say, God, please lead me with a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. And what we don't realize is that these people did not have the Holy Spirit or the written word of God in their lives. You know, I go to Acts chapter 1, where the church begins. Jesus has died. He's ascended into heaven. The church has not yet received the Holy Spirit. It's this little passage between Jesus' presence on earth and the Holy Spirit's presence on earth where there's just a few days there where they are called to wait. They're told to wait for the Holy Spirit. And what do they do? They replace one of the disciples, they replace Judas by actually um, casting lots. It was essentially like a game of chance to decide what God's will was. They rolled stuff to decide what God's will was, because they were in between having Jesus' presence and having the Holy Spirit's presence. But we live in the post-Holy Spirit coming to live and indwell in us as believers. We don't have to cast lots. We don't have to play games of chance. We don't have to guess what God is doing. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. These people did not. They needed a physical manifestation to show them the way to go, because they did not have the Holy Spirit in their lives. They also did not have the written word of God in its finished form, and we have that. How many times do we get to a place where we need to make a decision and we don't consult God's word and we don't pray for the Holy Spirit's, uh, you know, to speak to us, to show us, and we don't ask people that we trust who love us and want the best for us and know us, and then we're mad later because we made a bad decision and we think God didn't show up or show us what to do. Uh, it's in your hands already. Open up his word. Okay? And so they needed this, but we don't live in that same exact place as them. So verse 1 for chapter 14. God, uh, sorry, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hiroth between Migdal and the sea. You can check all those translations. I'm sure they're wrong. Um, I'm not saying that correctly, probably. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposed, uh, opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around in confusion hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all of his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And so the Israelites did this. The key word phrase there, the key sentence is, the Israelites did this. They're starting to figure it out. They're going to have trouble. 
They're going to go back and forth between being obedient to what God is saying and being obstinate. Just the same way that we go back and forth between obeying God and being obstinate. This is the, the dilemma in our hearts all the time. Am I going to listen and obey what God is telling me to do? Or am I going to do my own thing because I know better than what God is telling me to do? And what's awesome about this is that he warns Moses, this is going to happen. He says, they are going to come after you. At this point, no one knows that they're still going to come after them. They think they're home free. They think they're good. They're actually going to go and they're going to camp near the ocean and they're going to have like a nice little vacation over by the ocean. It's going to be beautiful. They're going to be sitting there and they're going to be counting all of their gold and all of their silver and trying on all of their fancy robes and probably trading back and forth between with other people. Hey, I got, I got all this, this old lady's clothes and it doesn't fit me. Do you want to trade? Maybe you've got something that is better for me. Hey, let's trade some gold. Let's, let's talk about, hey, you got, the, you got the china from those people? Like, can we switch some stuff out here? Like, they're having a great time, camp by the ocean, enjoying the, the fruits of what God has given them, okay? And then things change. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back. Oh, sorry, let me go to the next section. Then the king, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. He might as well also say they have stolen all of our wealth. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and so he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Piharoth, opposite Balzaphon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. Now, you can imagine them going from, we're having a great vacation by the sea, this is going well, to them looking up and saying, oh no. Now, this, there's a lot of what's going on here that's a metaphor for later on. Almost all of the Old Testament, as we read it, points to a couple things. Points to Jesus we can almost always see Jesus in these, in these scenarios, and almost always we can see a, uh, a picture, or later on we can put together the pieces to see what God is doing in humanity and also in us. The Israelites have been saved from slavery and been redeemed. They have been brought out of slavery to a new place to live in their relationship with God, and they're finding themselves being obedient to Jesus when things are going great when they've been given all the wealth possible, when they've been given all the possessions they want, when they've been walked, literally walked out without a fight from the captivity that they were living in, when there's a cloud of fire and smoke leading them, they find themselves willing to obey. But then they look up, and here comes a problem. Here comes the Egyptians ready to put them back into captivity. And it says very clearly here that when they saw this, when they looked up, let me find it here. When they looked up, I know it's right here in front of me. As the Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. And what it's, what it's about to say at this point is that they turned and worshipped and asked God to save them. See, here's, here's the thing that goes on in, in, in our lives. Like, we receive Jesus, and then there's a period there where we think, okay, now that I've received Jesus, everything in my life should go great. Right? 
we find ourselves saying, okay, now that I'm serving God, all the blessings that come from being someone who serves God should now all flood into my life and I should now live the rest of my life as someone who's blessed by God at all times. You know, we, we see even as Jesus talks about the, the seed that was scattered, that it took root in some people, but then some of it was scorched and some of it was, was uh, the life was squeezed out of it and so the salvation that the person had uh, had a hard time taking root. Well, these people have been saved. The question is whether or not this is going to take root in their lives. The question is whether or not it's going to you know, be given back to the enemy. And I want you to know, if you're a new believer and you receive Jesus, that life is not going to be perfect for, for the rest of your life. You have not signed up to be healthy and wealthy. There are churches out there that would tell you that. And you know, to be honest with you, their pastors drive Mercedes Benzes. And maybe we should just change that to that, maybe we should tell that gospel because then I could drive myself a Mercedes-Benz around, right? But no, I mean, Jesus makes it really clear that you're going to have trouble in this world that you're going to receive and be at the, at the tail end of some terrible things that are going to happen. That you're not protected from the same stuff that happens to other people, that you're going to go through hardship. That you're going to find yourself in times where you want to question whether God is with you or not. And even though he showed himself to you through 10 plagues and, and given you all the wealth of Egypt and taken you out of uh, captivity and slavery, you still are going to find yourself standing at the edge of the ocean asking if God is with you. That's going to happen. You know what the, the enemy loves to do? As soon as we find faith in Christ, he loves to come and try to snatch it away quickly before it takes root in our lives. That there's a process for us when we receive Jesus to allow this to take root, right? To allow this to grow and to be uh, something that actually takes in our lives. And you know what it takes in a situation like that? It takes a community of people around us to encourage us, to help that take root. It takes us diving into God's word. It takes us diving into his community of believers. It takes us trying to figure out exactly what he's doing in our lives and allowing that to take root in us. And the Israelites are in a place where they could either have their faith snatched away from them or they could have their faith even uh, take root in their, in their community. And they're in a vulnerable place. Um, and you know, the, the scripture talks about these trials. Like Jesus, as he talks about it, he says, there will be storms that will come. He tells the story about the man who built his house on the sand and the man who built his house on a solid foundation. And he says, all these people deal with, with, with storms. James, when he talks about trials, he says, uh, I count it as pure joy when I face trials because I know those trials will create character within me. They'll create an opportunity for growth within me. In these moments, when those trials are coming, God is saying, this is for my glory in these moments. Not necessarily, I'm not necessarily doing something here outside of the box. I'm trying to make a name for myself through this community of people, and I'm creating something in them. And so as we find ourselves in these places where we look back and we see an army approaching, ready to snatch the faith away that is so vulnerable in our lives, we have to dig in. Now, God is going to do something in that moment, like what he does here for uh, these Israelites. They were, they were terrified. This is what it says in the next verse. They were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. So they did the right thing. When they saw that coming and they realized they were in a trial and they realized the faith could be snatched away, they cried out to the Lord. They went to the right place. But then some of them, 
And again, this shows you the difference between someone whose heart is all in with Jesus and someone who's still in that vulnerable stage of not being sure where they stand with God. It says, then they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? I would have been better, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. There's a lot of people who would rather be slaves to their sin than be brought out of that slavery into a new place where they can serve God. And when we find ourselves in the other side of faith, there's still always the temptation to go back to that old way of living. But listen to what they do. They downplay the life that they were leading. They say, wouldn't it have been better for us to serve Pharaoh and to serve the Egyptians rather than die? There was no service here. This was slavery. Every morning when they woke up, they were slaves to the brick count that they had to create. Every single morning when they woke up, there was work to be done at the hands of people who hated them and beat them mercilessly to do the work. Don't look back and glorify a lifestyle that keeps you in slavery and beats you into submission. That is never better than getting out of that and following Jesus. And there will be moments where you think, I don't know where this is going. And they're saying, we could die in this place. But God is not going to leave them here and let them die in this moment. God is going to show up and do something incredible as they put their faith into action. You know, there's this, um, there's this Ikea, like, generic uh, painting or canvas that you can get. It, maybe you've seen this. I feel like it's in every church that I've ever been in. Um, it's, like, in the jungle, and there's this, like, rope bridge that goes across this, like, ravine to this, like, big tree on the other side. And it's, like, every church in the entire world has this, like, $15 Ikea canvas in their, in their church. And I, I was just like, why is, I mean, first of all, it's cheap, and churches are cheap, right? So that's kind of what, what I, makes sense to me that they're putting something big on the wall. I actually had one in my youth room, so I'm making fun of myself here. Um, and I always wonder, like, what are, we, what are we trying to, we see that as a metaphor, a spiritual metaphor? But, but honestly, it is, right? When you're new to faith, or you're someone who's not mature in your faith, there's a moment that comes as you start to live out your faith where you transfer all your weight onto the path ahead of you and you lean into what God is doing. There's a moment where, you know, you're standing on ground and you're saying, I don't know about this thing. What is God doing in my life? Should I, should I go for this? And you're chickening out right there at the edge of the line of faith. And you're like, I don't know. And you start to put your foot out on that bridge. The moment where you really exercise your faith is where you give all your weight to what's in front of you. There's a lot of us who want to keep our feet firmly planted on solid ground instead of trust what God is doing ahead of us and transfer all of our weight to what he's doing. We like hedge. We, We say like, I want to be in control and I'm going to control this much and I'm just going to stick my leg out and I'm going to look like I'm putting my weight out here, but in case this gives way, I can, I can lean back, and I'm good to go. I, I, you try having uh, balance with five toes. Um, 
It'll hit you later. Uh, I just, I just want to ask you, have you like really given all your weight to what Jesus is doing in your life? Like all of it. Have you said like the decisions that I'm going to make in my life are dependent on what God is calling me to do? I'm going to look at everything I have as being God's and I'm going to worship him with all of it. I'm going to look at my schedule as being God's. I'm going to look at my family as being God's. I'm going to look at my finances as being God's. I'm going to look at everything I have to give, and I'm going to give it to Jesus and ask him to create that path in front of me where he wants me to go. And I'm going to put my full weight into it. You know, I've been having a lot of conversations lately with people who I feel like are hedging they want to lean back and control as much as they can, but they're like willing just to do like this. They're like, I'll go this far for Jesus. And I want you to know like a mature believer will get halfway, three quarters, all the way out on that bridge, letting God be the one that controls where they're going and what's happening, and they'll put their full weight into that. An immature believer will still hedge to make sure that there's an exit plan for them to make sure that they can control certain parts of their life, to make sure that they have what they want or what they need or they're giving into their own, own selfishness and they aren't seeing that faith is meant to be exercised and it's meant to be exercised in a way where you give all your weight to what God is doing and you put all of your weight on his method of what he's doing in your life. So that's why that stupid thing hangs in all those churches. You'd say as a leader of these people, these are these uh, this response, these are stiff-necked people who haven't learned what God is up to. They've been through 10 plagues. They've watched him destroy the entire economy of Egypt. They've watched him crush all of the other gods of Egypt, including the future of Egypt. And now he's about to destroy Pharaoh and the army of Egypt, and still they are questioning whether they should go back. Moses answered the people. Right? I, I, if it's me and you know it's it's Christmas morning and I, I've just given my kids their presents and uh, this I, by the way I stole from another pastor this this illustration uh, and he says like I give my kids their presents and they look at me disappointed after I've given them the presents then I just want to grab all of those presents put them in the car and take them back and return them all and come back or maybe even just go out and set them on fire in the yard just to prove a point like if I'm Moses here I'm going to be like really, really annoyed and really ready to just give it to him. Like, are you guys joking? Hey, where did you get all this gold? Uh, hey, how did you leave without a fight? Like, what just happened to the entire economy of Egypt? Maybe just give God a chance to prove himself to us like he's been doing all along the way. Moses uh, just way better than, way better leader than I am. He says, then Moses said to them, was it because, sorry, they said to Moses, was it because there was no graves in Egypt? Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need to only to be still. You need, and and one translation says, like honestly, the way that it's translated is like you need to you need to shut up and stop and watch what God will do. He is going to fight this battle. And we'll see this all throughout the Old Testament where God, whenever there are odds against another army, I'm not like a, a 
you know, a historical battle person, but if you are, you watch God many times continue to take the odds of a battle down and down and down and down. He'll be like, hey, you know, it's one to a hundred, so that's not, you know, that's, that's what I'm looking for. It was one to ten. I asked you to, you know, scale it back. It was one to five. I asked you to scale it back. I like one to a hundred. I want you to know when you walk out of that battle, it was me who did it, not, not you. And so Moses tells them, shut up which it must have felt good to say to them, and relax. Let God do what he's going to do. He's going to fight for you. He's going to win this battle. And the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea. Divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and his army. Through the chariots and the horsemen, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. Can you imagine how intense that moment must have been? This cloud of fire and this cloud of smoke that's been guiding you through the wilderness now goes behind you, gets behind you and starts to guard you against what's going on. Now, God here clearly guides us, but also God guards us. It's really interesting. Um, I picked up my kid from camp, uh, and on the way home, from camp, we had like this two-hour drive coming home, and I was like, hey, my, Miles, what did you learn at, learn at camp? And uh, he's just like, I don't know, nothing. <laughs> and I was like, well, what did you talk about in chapel? Uh, I, don't, I don't remember. Okay, well, what did you guys talk about in the, in the cabins? Like, well, there must have been something that was shared, or like God made this breakthrough in your life, and I was like so excited to have this conversation. As a dad, I'm like, I'm going to talk about religious stuff on the way home. I'm, I'm going to do what, you know, I'm going to make sure that, you know, generational, you know, uh, whole thing is going through my head. And he's got nothing for me. It's like he's already a teenager at 10 years old. And we picked up another kid. And the other kid is like this super smart, nerdy, uh, hysterical kid. And I said, so I said to the other kid, I said, hey, what did you learn? He goes, well, I learned about the armor of God. And it was really amazing because, you know, you know, there's something about the armor of God that's really impressive and I was like, okay, tell me. I'm a pastor, but I'm going to take some notes here. Maybe this is going to make it into a sermon. And by the way, here we are. And, <laughs> and he goes, do you know the armor of God is all front-facing? I was like, okay, I suppose. He goes, there's nothing on the armor of God that protects your back. I was like, okay. He's like, you have to face your enemy and let God guard your rear. I was like, whoa, (laughs) 10-year-old theologian. That's what happens here. God's word guides us. God's presence guides us. We should be following. But often there are times when God guards the rear, where God says, enough. I don't want this person to lose their faith. I don't want them to go backwards. I want to show them that I'm here. I'm going to prove myself to them. And he goes and guards the rear. He makes sure that he's between us and whatever the thing is that's chasing us and wants to get us. Like, if you'll trust him, put your full faith in him. Not only will he guide you where he wants you to go, but he'll guard the rear. 
He'll make sure that those things aren't allowed to take you down, that if you stay focused on what you're called to do, and in this moment they're called to you know, pull the water aside and walk through, they know exactly what God is calling them to do, he is guarding the rear. And I think a lot of us, we would rather just have God guard us so that we can do whatever we want. And there's some of us that we would only want God in front of us, that guiding us, but we don't really need him to guard us. And I think there's both of these things happening, that we have faith that he's guiding us in the right place, but we also have faith that he's the kind of God that has our back. That's a theological term, essentially, in this moment. He has our back. He's not going to leave us out there all alone so that the enemy can come in like a roaring lion and take us down. And a lot of times the way this works, by the way, is a group of people that you're connected to who guard the rear for those of us who are still really developing our faith. It's almost like we are back there with our armor on, facing an enemy, fighting that enemy off so that we can get people who are weaker through what God is putting them through in that, in that time. And so God will guard us and he will guide us. It says, The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night in the cloud, he brought darkness to the one side and light to the other. He made, he made their way harder and Israel's way easier. So neither went near the other all night long. This is like an incredible moment. It makes me think of um, Star Wars. I think it's the first one where Obi-Wan and uh, Qui-Gon Jinn are about to fight uh, Darth Maul. Nobody, anyone follow me on this? It's a, it's a sweet moment. This is just for my Star Wars people. Uh, and there's these like things that move and they like close off areas and he's there like fighting, fighting, fighting. And all of a sudden, and they just stand there and look at each other through the wall. And they're just waiting, you know, and Qui-Gon Jinn like gets down and starts to like, like do like a meditative state. And then the wall opens back up and they go fighting again. Okay, terrible illustration. Only half of you understood that. There's like this moment where they can almost see each other. They're like right on top of each other, but nothing is happening all night long. They're Israelites continuing to walk through. They're trying to get all this one and a half million people through this entire thing. It wouldn't have happened fast. It would have been something that they would have been rushing to do, would have been taking some time. And so God is protecting them, making sure that they can do what he's called them to do. If God calls us to do it, he's going to provide a way for us to do it. If we're being obedient, he's going to provide that way for us to be able to do what he's called us to do. Neither side went near the other all night long. Moses stretches out his hands over the sea, and all night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided. The Israelites went through the sea on dry ground. They went through walking, carrying all their stuff. With a wall of water on their right and one on their left, the Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire, which is crazy because they haven't put that part into it. Like this fire angels on top of the pillar, that's amazing. Um, Looked down from the fire on the cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion, jamming their wheels of their chariots. These were like tanks in that time frame, by the way. And so it just took all of their heavy-duty artillery, all of their heaviest uh, stuff for war, and just threw it into chaos. They had difficulty driving. What was their strength became a problem for them. And the Egyptians said, let's just get away from these people. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. And Moses 
stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. They're running towards the end, and God just sweeps them out out to sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of the Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, and none of them survived, but the Israelites walked across that sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left. The day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the, the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of God displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. And what we have here, real quickly, because I'm way, I'm way over here, but you have people that have been pulled out of captivity. They've been redeemed from slavery. They've seen their relationship with God begin, and they've walked through the waters. What you have here is an image of a new believer, someone who receives Jesus And they're vulnerable at that time. They need protection from the community of people around them and from God in that moment. And you see them walking through the waters. Essentially, this was a baptism for Israel. Walking through the waters, literal waters of an ocean. That as we are baptized into our faith and into the community of people that are around us, our faith really starts to take root on the other side of that baptism as we begin to fear the Lord after we've seen him at work in our lives. This is what it looks like to become a believer. And by the way, they receive the law on the other side of the waters of baptism. Their behavior is not changed at all until they've received this relationship with God and been through those waters of baptism. And it's on the other side where we start to act like a believer. A lot of times as a church, we expect people to act like a believer before they know Jesus, and that makes no sense at all. We start calling people to Christian behavior before they even know Jesus or have the Holy Spirit or have been baptized, and that makes no sense at all. We find ourselves in a place where we can receive people wherever they're at, whatever mess that they're in, and invite them into a relationship with Jesus and baptize them and begin to start to do the work that God wants to do in their lives. What's amazing about this is that God is the one that that does the judgment part of this. He's the one that does the judgment part of it. We don't need to do the judgment part of it because we serve a just God who will eventually serve the justice that he needs to serve in people's lives. We are on the place where we can just love and give grace to people. It's not up to me to judge. It's up to God to judge. He's the one that will destroy the army if it needs to be destroyed or judge the people if they need to be judged. He calls me to love and serve other people into a relationship with Jesus. That's what we're doing as a church here, by the way. You, you, you can come with whatever baggage you have. Like, you're welcome to be part of this community. We'll accept you in with open arms, no matter what's going on in your life. But we'll keep calling you to faith in Jesus. And we'll tell you that on the other side of baptism, when you find the fear of the Lord, that's where your life will begin to change and look like it should look as a believer in Jesus. This is what we're doing as a church, inviting those people in. And and by the way, in the meantime, there will be many of us who will be guarding the rear. There will be many of us who are inviting people into that relationship and helping it take root in their lives and discipling those people and inviting them into our small groups and into our homes 
and encouraging them in their faith and continuing to tell them to put their full weight into Christ as they say yes to Jesus. This is what it looks like. Israel is just learning this. They're still going to have a hard time putting it into practice. It's going to take a long time before they're living this out. About 40 years, actually. So. We still find ourselves in that place, but it's on the other side of those waters of baptism where we find ourselves living for Jesus the way that we should after he's proved himself to us and after we've let that faith take root in our lives. Let me, let me pray for us as we close. Jesus, would you just continue to show us that you care so much about us? Would you help us to live as believers receiving people in all of their mess, in all of their doubt, in all of their confusion, and loving them into relationship with you, God, would you move in their lives to draw them into that relationship? Would you call new and more people to faith in this church every week? Would you open up hearts to receive what you're doing in their lives, God? Would you show us what it looks like to be the kind of community that that take up the rear and protect those of us who are vulnerable and still working on letting that faith take root. God, would you show yourself to us in power the same way that you did in Israel? Would we see those blessings? Would we recognize those blessings? Would we celebrate those moments? God, I thank you for everything that you're doing in this church, for who you've called to be part of this, for who you continue to call to come in and be part of what we're doing. As we even go into the fall and more and more people show up here, God, would you just continue to help us to reach out to those people, to love them, to give them grace, and to encourage them to follow you with everything that we have. We love you. We thank you that you don't leave us alone, that you just keep on coming for us. God, we we even admit our own our own selfishness. God, we admit that we get it wrong. We admit that we're easily influenced by the world. We admit that we keep our eyes sometimes on other things that we shouldn't. Would you just continue to deal with us in a way that's full of grace and mercy as we continue to follow you? In Jesus' name, amen.